Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 65 of the Leadership Window. I hope you're on track with your plan because don't look now, but it's the end of April. <laughs> uh, sorry to like upset you, but it's moving really, really fast. Um, I'm excited. Things are going great at the Jinx Perspective. We're working on so many just amazing projects. I will tell you, I'm busier now than I have probably ever been in the business, which is great. Uh, it might be a little bit frustrating for folks every once in a while because, you know, that makes me get slower responding to emails and those kinds of things sometimes. But uh, life is good, and I, I hopefully we're moving in a positive direction. Again, welcome to the show. Great show today. A little unique. Haven't done this topic before, but Eddie Rice is my guest, and he is a professional speech writer with over 10 years of experience in helping business leaders, keynote speakers, TED Talk presenters, and everyday people, just anyone who has any opportunity to say something in public, has a message, has a platform, and he helps them enhance the messages that they tell through both great storytelling and structure. Um, I'm going to let him say more about how he got into this, but as a speech writer, he has worked with CEOs, college presidents, and trustees superintendents and principals, business owners, authors, politicians, nonprofit leaders, which uh, are a lot of you are listening to this show, pretty much everyone in between. And um, it, it, what I love about how he promotes his own work is that public speaking and speech writing are equalizers. We all want to say just the right words, whether it's small groups or large audiences, but public speaking and speech writing are equalizers. I love that. I got that right off of Eddie's website and just I just loved it. I, I think that is so absolutely true. His new book, Toast, Short Speeches, Big Impact, just released last week on Amazon. Please go get that. It is a quick read, but a powerful read. Super practical. We're going to talk a little bit about the content and the structure of the book, but let's get on uh, with it. Eddie, thanks so much for uh, carving out time for us. I'm excited about this episode and this conversation with you. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's wonderful to be here. Well, um, let's just start here. When you get into the world of professional speech writing, like how do you do that? What path leads you there? Tell us a little bit about you and and you know, your work and how you, how you got here. I really fell into it. Um, if you look back when I started in college, I took a lot of classes in philosophy and rhetoric. We studied the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, Aristotle mm. and Cicero. And we asked ourselves, what are they saying that's still applicable today? And sure enough, 5,000 years later, almost all of their advice was still applicable in <laughs> yeah. the modern day. No kidding. And we quote them all the time. Yeah, great. That's, that makes a lot of sense as a source. We do, whether it's telling a story, how you divide up your speech or the purpose of your speech. Um, Aristotle and Cicero nailed it uh, many years ago, and I just love that aspect of it. Hmm. And truth be told, I didn't think I was going to be a speechwriter right out of college. I actually thought I was either going to be a lawyer or a teacher. And I actually went to um, Teach for America for two years out of college, 
taught in the Mississippi Delta, then another three in Austin, Texas with a really cool charter school called KIPP. And then um, honestly, after five years of teaching, I said, this wasn't for me. It wasn't the right path. So I had to find something else to do. And I thought at that time, well, I'd done Toastmasters. I had been in the mock trial team in college. I had done a lot of the rhetoric courses. Maybe I can teach other people how to be public speakers, be a public speaking coach. But my problem was I didn't have any client base. I didn't know how to get referrals. I didn't know how to do content marketing. I didn't know how to put together a website. And I failed at that first endeavor. But it was during that time that I discovered that people needed speeches just written for them. They didn't want the public speaking coaching. They wanted the words, and then they would go perform them. So I saw postings on places like Elance and Odesk, the predecessors to Upwork, and people needed speeches. So I started pitching myself and got my first batch of clients. And then I taught myself how to put together a website, how to do content marketing, how to get referrals from people. And I just built the business up from there. Good for you. And I can relate to so much of that. I think any solopreneur and consultant can relate to that. You get into this work because you're a coach or you're a speaker or you're a trainer or you're a speechwriter. You don't get into it because you're a marketer, but you realize very quickly, oh yeah, I have to be that too if I'm going to actually deliver value to anybody. So I totally get that. And clearly you've you've done it and you've kind of uh, crossed that that threshold and that tipping point. And, and it's great that you've figured out, you know, let's start with the writing piece and the rest of it will sort of come together. I'm curious as to, um, obviously we don't have time for the full course right now, but you mentioned, you know, Aristotle and these others, these ancient philosophers and how they had it right. What is it they had right? Like if you had to sum it up in, you know, two or three tenets, why was, why was their rhetoric so powerful? Why do we still use that model today? What is it? What's the essence of what it is they had right? They understood understanding your audience. Um, especially Aristotle and Cicero, where they talked about tapping into your audience's emotions, tapping into the concerns on the audience's mind and mm. the questions that are inside of them. And that's what I walk a lot of my clients through each time that I work with them. I ask them, well, what are the common questions that are going to be on your audience's mind? And can you answer them in your speech? And if you can do that, then you're going to have a successful speech. I know speakers who will, right before they go on stage, start polling audience members about the questions they have. And then they bring those questions up on stage with them and say, look, I talked to this person and this person, and they wanted to know this, and I'm going to answer these questions today. And sure enough, that's almost always the same questions that are on everyone's minds. That's a great tip right there to you because you anticipate the questions. You're not caught off guard and put on the spot on stage by hearing a question you didn't expect. You have a little bit of time if you poll in advance. I make my living asking questions. And so one of the things that I find in the people that I coach is that if I can direct them to ask more questions, it, it brings a comfort level because a lot of times the answers that come back, like, like, you know, what are some of your questions is a question. And the answers that come back actually probably make you feel a little bit better. I think nine times out of 10 people realize, okay, these aren't, those questions aren't that tough. I do know what I'm talking about. I do know this stuff. I do have an answer I think is going to be valuable to the audience. And you start to feel a little bit better. It's a great tip to ask in advance what the questions are. Right. And it's also something you can do if you're in a media interview. Um, you can anticipate what questions the reporters are going to ask you. I mean, they all ask the same basic five to seven questions. If you know those in advance, you're going to be a pro talking to the media. 
I don't, that is fantastic advice right there. I want to pause on that because I remember years ago going through media training, you know, through some of these chamber leadership programs, a lot of them have media training. They put you in front of a news camera and let you role play. And we think about, you know, we train ourselves to be, be able to answer questions off the cuff. And one of the things they tell you is you don't have to answer the question that was asked. You just have to had, you just have to speak because, you know, the question isn't put on camera on, on the news. But whoever thought about, you know, before the camera starts rolling to say, what are some of the things that you intend to ask me? What are the kind of things you want to know so I can get in the right mindset and just have them have them lay it out? I mean, who's going to say, oh, I'm not going to tell you I want to catch you off guard. Exactly. Most most of the journalists out there are going to be partners with you and wanting to create a great interview. And they'll definitely lay out what's going to, you know, go down within the interview. They'll give you that outline. They won't give you every exact question in advance for your lawyers to look over. Yeah. But, you know, you'll still be prepped enough that you because you you and the interviewer want a great interview. And it's a partnership. Mm. I love it. I love it. Uh, let's move into what I think is kind of a core tenet and value proposition for you. And that is the idea of writing the speech before you give it. When I, in my experience, people that are terrified of public speaking, it's the speaking they're scared of. And part of the reason is that they haven't done enough work on the front end, preparing to give the speech, writing it, knowing exactly what it is they want to get across. That just adds so much comfort and calmness and confidence. And I think a lot of time, maybe I'm just speaking for myself. I think I'm projecting right now because I do a lot of off the cuff speaking and my public speaking training early on in high school was extemporaneous public speaking and doing the extemporaneous public speaking contests and things. And you don't have a lot of time to prepare, but I love this idea of if you get the writing right, the speaking will kind of do itself. Maybe that's a little overstatement, but talk about how, uh, you know, give, give us your perspective on that. When you're coaching people, do you spend more time on the writing aspect and and structuring or more on the speaking and delivering aspect? It really depends on what the client needs when they come to me. So for some people, it's they just need a set of words and they can go up there and deliver them incredibly well because they're polished speakers and they can speak extemporaneously, but they still want that preparation. Mm -hmm. Whereas others, it's more of a 50-50 where we work on the words incredibly well and then go into, okay, now that we have the words down, let's put together some practice sessions to go into how you're actually going to say this speech on stage. So I think it's really equal parts when it comes to the writing itself and the actual delivery of the speech. You need to have both. It's just some people have more, I guess, comfort level or practice with one area or the other, and I help them you know, bring that into balance. Is your preference a word for word, like, do you, do you coach people to memorize speeches or to maybe even to read manuscripts uh, or, or do you teach people more to use the, know the five bullets and be comfortable delivering those? Where do you tend to lean with speakers on that? I'm very much with the bullet, uh, method of, of presenting. So what I tell people to do is this process called scaffolded memorization, where you take the speech you want to give write it out word for word in the beginning and get comfortable with all of those words that are on the page. Then back up and create an outline from what you just wrote. Then give your speech just from that outline and then try to keep shortening the outline over and over again until you just have a set of bullet points and you can deliver it from there. So you have your notes as backup, 
but you have the speech itself internalized and you just forgive yourself for not putting things in the right place or the forgetting an and or a the or a but in a sentence. And you just go ahead and trust yourself that the words are going to come when you start speaking. Wow. Great, great advice. Uh, I will say that there is a discipline to this because what you just described writing the speech out word for word, practicing it, then doing an outline, then practicing it, then do, even your book, as I was going through your book, you talk about drafting it, editing it, rehearsing it, re-editing it. There's a lot of work that goes into it if you want to be good at this. And so for people that say, oh, I really want to get better at public speaking, I'm just not that good at it. It takes a discipline, just like being excellent at anything else, a musical instrument or a sport. So I just want, I just want our listeners to hear that you, you say it pretty quickly, you know, oh, you know, you write the whole thing out and then you do it word for word and then you learn the words and you write the outline. It's out, it's quick to say it, but it's, a, there's a discipline behind it and you got to put in the time and the effort in advance. Oh, very much. I think very, I think it's similar to what we see on TV when ESPN is showing us sports highlights. We don't ever get to see all of the practices that these players went through. We don't get to see the missed catches in practice or the missed reads or, you know, the penalty kick that didn't go in. Instead, we're seeing all of the highlights of people's successes. And the same thing happens with public speaking. We see the polished keynote on stage, but we don't see that person's, pers that person's first keynote. We don't get to see them failing. We don't get to see them speaking to an audience of, you know, five people who are just family and friends when they just started out. We don't get to see that entire journey of all those failures along the way. And if we did, we'd have a much different perspective on public speaking and what it takes to be a great speaker. Boy, that sounds like the transcript, Eddie, of my YouTube episode last week about practicing leadership and what we don't see, you know, the hours, the thousands and thousands of ground balls fielded. You know, we just see an awesome shortstop that just has natural talent and has, you know, eight gold gloves. We don't see that work. And yet... You know, a lot of our listeners are nonprofit leaders, and unfortunately, in this sector, there is a lot of lamenting around the idea that we don't have time to do the same kind of refining and leadership development and practicing speeches that corporate leaders have or that media personalities have, to which my answer is, you better because it's part of the job and practicing and getting good at, at your your um, craft and storytelling in the nonprofit sector, speech giving in all different kinds of formats is a big, big part of the work. It's a huge, uh, critical thing. You, we've got to practice it. Oh, 100%. And just, you know, to put everyone's mind at ease, even those corporate leaders are short on time as well. I mean, yeah. I just, yeah. I, I look at some of the people that I work with and just their days and their to-do lists are so long uh, they they don't have extra time that anyone else doesn't have for whatever reason. Um, they they we're all pressed for time in our daily work and life, and we have to find those outlets to become better at public speaking. Well, I don't know if that makes me feel better or worse, but it is absolutely true. They don't have any more time than we have. Same twenty four hours in a day. It's all about the discipline. Uh, let me ask you this: When you are in in your work, what has been your experience in terms of? the greatest challenge? What are the big barriers that people just have the most difficult time getting over when it comes to speech giving? And by the way, when we say speech giving, I think it's everything from that formal speech, like a TEDx to 
you know, giving, giving out an award at an annual meeting at the end of the year. So what is the biggest challenge in your experience? The thing that just keeps popping up that most people struggle with when it comes to public speaking and speech giving? I think there's a few, but if I had to go with one, it would be the brainstorming part of it. Many people come to me and say, look, I've got this speech coming up. It's an award. It's a graduation address. It's a keynote. And I just don't have anything to say. And of course, that's not true. Um, the person does. <laughs> right. So what I do is I walk them through a lot of brainstorming questions to pull out the stories that I, I want them to give in their speech or the main point that they want to make. And usually what we do, the first step, is we come up with the main message of their speech in one sentence. And then we build the speech around that one sentence. And we use it as an editing tool. We say, okay, if you're going to tell a story, does it relate to that main message? Does it relate to that one sentence? If you're going to use a number, does it relate back to that? If it does, it goes in the speech. If it doesn't, it doesn't go in the speech. And that creates a much more focused message in the end. So it's a lot of times it's the brainstorming that people run into problems with. But if you can get the right questions down on paper and the right answers, then you're going to be in a much better spot to give a speech. When people use a lot of filler words, um, you know, like whatever the habit is for that individual. And we all have them to some degree. I, I have far too many of them. I sometimes hate going back and listening to podcasts and things. But do you find that the more development on the front end with the brainstorming, the writing, the structuring, does that decrease the ums, you knows, and likes? Or is that just a habit that is more on the speaking side that just takes a different kind of coaching to get through? It's a blend of the two. I think first, if you have a really good script, your your brain isn't going to be searching for what to say next. And that's what happens when we have those filler words. We're trying to figure out what is my next sentence. And we're just trying to fill the space with um, ah, uh, or like, or so, or and so, or and but, whatever it is. And if you have a really good script ahead of time, you're going to be less likely to use those. But then it does come down to the public speaking side of just noticing what your bad habits are. So I'm in Toastmasters. Yeah. And one of the key qualities of their meeting is they have an um and an ah counter, where there's a person who is assigned throughout the meeting to count the number of ums and ahs and filler words that people use and report back at the end of it. It sounds a little bit scary, but it's really not. But it helps you notice that you're actually doing that so you can start fixing it while you are a speaker. It's helped me tremendously. I was, I, I've had meetings where I've been the leader in the um and the ah counter, <laughs> where that's not a good you know, medal to get at the end of the night. But it's helped me in saying, okay, this is your favorite filler word watch out when you use it. And I'm much more cognizant when I'm speaking of what words I'm using. And that's helped me tremendously in curbing those habits. I've experienced that at Toastmasters meeting and meetings, and it really isn't intimidating because the group is very safe and supportive. And this is the group you want to have count. What you don't want is to have the audience out there at the event going, good grief. Um, I listen to some of the media personalities and the amount of ums that come from professionals is stunning to me sometimes. And, and you just want to say somebody needs to, like, you don't have a staff <laughs> like telling you these things over time and they don't seem to change. They don't seem to improve. Uh, I mean, I've seen, you know, 
spokespeople, like the people who are paid to be the spokesperson, really struggle with the ums. Now, I know that's when they're normally when they're answering questions. I mean, if you're the press secretary, for example, you're up there, you, you know, you're you're fielding rapid fire questions. You do have some notes because you're anticipating some of those questions. But the training, I'm not picking on any I'm not, I'm not picking on anybody, but the training seems to really be lacking even among professionals who do this for a living. Do you find that? Do you agree? Oh, I do. I, I watch the same media that you do probably. And at the same time, I'm there counting the ums and ahs at times when I start hearing them. And you just, if you tune into it, you won't be able to stop hearing them when people are saying them on, on air. And it's going to start grading on you a little bit. But that's another practice you can pick up is start listening for other people's ums and ahs, especially on the media. And you can pick up what they're saying and do a much better job than they can. And I get it. You know, Sometimes it's just nerves that are racking people or they right. don't have all the answers or they have the answers and they're just not allowed to give them. So they're trying to find what do I say instead? And they're scrambling for it. So I think it does come down to preparation, knowing that if you can't say something, you better have a better answer than you know whatever it is you're not allowed to say if you're a spokesperson. One of the things I have found powerful, and I've tried to practice it, but you really have to be hyper aware to do this, is when you're asked a question, or if you get stuck in your own manuscript during a speech, silence is scary but also incredibly effective. The pause um, that just makes you think about the next words that are come out. I'm actually doing it right now. That makes you think about the next words that are going to come out of your mouth. And when a question gets asked, I learned this in, an, in a job interview. I was just ripping the answers. I mean, I was just tearing it up, right? I'm, oh, I'm a great interviewer. And she, you know, she was asking me, you know, What's your vision for such as ah, blah, 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 blah. And you know, all the, all the interview questions. And she stopped me and she said, can I pause you for just a minute? I said, sure. She goes, you know, you're giving me good answers, but I'm asking you deep questions. It's okay. If you want to pause for a minute. Oh, it was such an indictment. I was like, oh my gosh, I never forgot. It was great advice. And I've given it now to many others. The silence is better than the ums, likes, and you knows because the ums, likes, and you knows sound like you're making something up, whereas the silence sound like sounds like you're contemplating. You're the expert here, but that's been my experience. Oh, I agree 100%. I did not pause right there. I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> well, we would have too long of an episode if we practice that too much here. That's right. That's right. But I, I, I totally agree. And I, what I do a lot of times is I will build in um, the pauses to the speech. What you can do is you can double space what you are writing mm. so that there's some natural pauses or just write it in, pause right here. And it's going to feel uncomfortable, but the pause to you feels longer than it actually is in real moments. And if you can do a silent count in your head, whether it's up to three or five for a longer pause, that's going to help you um, deliver your message so much better and it's going to be crisp and you're going to be able to land the particular lines that you want to land if you put a pause in between or right before what it is that you want to say people should be paying for this episode eddie this is really those are that's great advice and and it um it's a little bit affirming too i use a teleprompter on my youtube channel 
and these are five minute videos and I've crafted, you know, I know exactly what I want the message to be. And so I write it out and I practice it and then I have a teleprompter. Most people are really surprised when they learn that I use a teleprompter, like on your video channels. I watch those all the time that you're not, there's no way you're using a teleprompter. I've learned and practiced and made it sound natural. But what I do for a, a little bit of a pause is, you know, the teleprompter just keeps running. I will put a line with just a, a, a space or a capital A or a couple of capital A's on lines by themselves to just make me stop and wait for that next line. And you, you literally do you build in pauses and you're so right. It's highly effective and you don't realize you do think that they're longer than they really are. The other thing I've learned, I'd love your take on this. My son and I were talking about, actually, we were talking about my TEDx talk that I did a, a couple of years ago in Greenville. And I left there sort of lamenting of all the stuff I wasn't able to get in. Some TEDx give you 10 minutes. Others give you 12. Some give you 18. This one was 12. And I had, there were several things I had to cut out and I hated cutting them out. Like I want to, I want this in there so bad. And my son was the one that reminded me, dad, Nobody knows what you cut out. Nobody knows. Oh, hey, why didn't he include the thing about such and such? You're the only one that knows that. That was such a great uh, reminder to me. Oh, totally agree with that. Um, I think growing up, I did a lot of um, public speaking and readings out loud. And that's exactly the same advice that I got is, you know, when you go through something, you're, no one's going to know what you left out unless, of course, you promised it at the beginning and didn't get to it. So that's one thing you have to watch out for. But for the most part, no one knows your speech. And whatever you give on the stage within that time limit, as long as you did that part incredibly well, no one's going to knock you for what you left out. Never. Yeah, yeah that's well said. Um, I have a question for you about authenticity. And I'll give you two examples of where it might show up as where I know it shows up as challenging for people. And one is when someone else writes your speech for you, mm -hmm. does it feel to the speaker? Wow, but this isn't mine. I, I don't want someone else writing it because it's not mine. And I don't know if I can deliver it the way that it's structured here. The other that I come across a lot in the nonprofit sector is storytelling when you're actually telling someone else's story and you're trying to make it yours so that it connects with the audience, but you are clearly telling a story about somebody else. And it might even be someone you haven't met. You didn't like see the story happen in real time. Maybe you read the story. Maybe it's a testimonial of somebody that was helped by your organization and you're just telling the story. But I think um, I've heard people struggle with the authenticity piece of it being someone else's story or someone else wrote the speech. I know Ronald Reagan, did, you know, he had Peggy Noonan and, yes. but he also did a lot of his own writing and he insisted on doing a lot of his own writing. So there was a blend between the two. How do you help people remain authentic when they might not be the ones who crafted that original message? I think it comes down to partnership. Um, when I work with someone, it's not just, Hey, Eddie, write me a speech on this topic and give it to me next week. It's never that. Mm -hmm. Instead, we're trading drafts back and forth. We're going over the outline together. We're going over the brainstorming session together. And it's a true back and forth that I have with the speaker. So it does feel like their words on the page. And then when it comes to authenticity and telling someone else's story, I think that comes down to honestly repetition. Just how comfortable are you ahead of time with that text? How much have you practiced it? 
how many times have you told that story and can you tell it in your own way? Because there's what's on the page. And I know as a speechwriter, the, the speaker is not going to say word for word what is on the page. The best ones are going to give their own spin to it. So if you can tell that story in your own words from your perspective, then you're going to be much closer to giving that authentic story. This is another thing that audiences don't see is how many times you may have given the same speech. And I, one of the analogies I've used is stand-up comedians. When you watch a really good stand-up comedian deliver a line, it sound, the best ones sound like they're just at a bar talking to you and they're delivering this great story and it's funny. But if you watch, if you go on YouTube and find the different clips of them giving that same joke at numerous venues, it's exactly the same. Every word is intentional. Every intonation, every nod of the head and and body language is 100% intentional. We don't see that. We see someone who is skilled at making a scripted line sound in the moment. And that's because of that repetition we don't see. I think that's so oh, true. Oh, very much. And also those comedians test out that material on numerous like Ooh. smaller clubs way before they get onto the bigger stages. They just drop in to these New York and LA clubs just for you know a five-minute set, a 10-minute set to try out new material, and it's completely raw. And we never get to see that practice unless someone's got a cell phone on in the audience saying, oh man, you know, Chris Rock just came in and did this set. Um, unless we have someone taping that, we never know and can see all of that initial early practice of the raw material that they're trying out. So true. What are some of the tips that come to mind if someone is considering trying to, or maybe they, they're auditioning, or maybe they got accepted to do a TEDx talk somewhere? Are there some specific tips? Because I know you list the, the TED Talks as one of the things you help people with. Are those unique um, in terms of a, a, a different approach for those? Or what are some of your key tips for preparing for or considering a TED Talk? Sure. I think it comes down to a few things when it comes to TED Talks. I've got some do's and don'ts. And I think starting with the don'ts is a little bit easier. And then we'll back into the do's for, for a TED Talk. One, you can't just have a single story that you tell and you get up on the stage and it's more like a therapy session. There has to be a point to the story that you actually want to tell. And two, with TED Talks, it's really good when you can plant a flag in your area of expertise where you are inviting the audience to reimagine your topic in a new way, or you're advancing a new point of view, or you are disagreeing with the common way of viewing things. Those types of TED Talks do incredibly well when you can plant that flag and take a stand on something. It can't just be, I have this story, or I found out this new thing. It's got to be against something or against a backdrop that you are saying, look, this is the new way to look at something. This is how we reinvent this topic. Those types of TED Talks seem to do the best, in my opinion. Yeah, their tagline is ideas worth spreading, and the best ones are the provocative ones. The ones that challenge Agreed, you and make, make you think a little bit differently. Yeah. Boy, that's really good. Um, I, uh, boy, there's so many different directions that I would love to go with this. Let me talk for a minute about the book. The book is called Toast. And uh, I'm already forgetting the, a bit, what is it, Big Ideas? Uh, uh, short Speeches, Big Impact. Short Speeches, Big Impact, yeah. One of the, one of the real common scenarios for nonprofit leaders for public speaking comes at things like annual meetings or board meetings where 
they're recognizing someone for their year of service or they're giving away a volunteer of the year award or maybe it's a conference and they're welcoming everybody or they're coming in to to do a, a, a quick close out after the after the closing keynote and so what are give, give me some of the tips when it comes to some of those shorter things i know you 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 work a lot for example with literally toasts you know the 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 um you know, toasting the bride and groom, for example, what are some of those tips? What are the things that are unique to those kinds of experiences that might be helpful to people? So what I I tell a lot of people is to honor the person and honor the event when you are giving a toast or a short ceremonial speech. So if you are honoring a volunteer, talk about the great work that volunteer has done. And the best stories are driven by obstacles. So tell us what obstacles did this volunteer run into? How did they overcome those obstacles? What, did, what can we all learn from that person's um, story? And if you can do that, you're honoring the person. And then, of course, honoring the event comes into play when you are talking about the meaning of the event. So is there a historical purpose for your nonprofit or the day that you are giving it, such as celebrating maybe a particular day in history? So talk about the meaning of that event as well. Um, but what it comes down to when you're honoring the person and honoring the event is it's a toast and it's not a roast. And I think a lot of mm. people go in the wrong direction of thinking, oh, I'm going to get up there and tell embarrassing stories about this person and it's going to be a lot of fun. And that's something you definitely don't want to do um, in the end with any type of ceremonial speech or short toast. <laughs> yeah, everyone everyone uh, is getting their moment to be a, a comedian. I think you say that in your book. You don't have to be a Hollywood a Hollywood comedian or something like that. You don't have to be Hollywood funny. I think that's great right. advice. Yeah, I think too often we see what's on Holly, what's on you know in movies and in TV, what passes for like a funny, humorous speech, and that's great when you have a team of script writers behind you who can make sure every single line is landing. That's not most of us. We're not stand-up comedians. And too often people hold themselves to this super high standard that you have to be Adam Sandler from The Wedding Singer um, <laughs> on you know, giving a toast. And that's not necessarily what you have to be. You have to instead be authentic. You have to say what this person means to you, what this event means to you. And if you leave it at that, you're going to be in a much better spot for giving a toast. Good advice. Um back to the back to the book i it, it is a quick read um i love those because they're simple reads i don't have to get all you know deep academic ethereal and try to figure out what you're saying what i love about it is it's practical and when you're talking about speech writing and speech giving you really want practical tools like the ones you're sharing right now i found that in going through the book i think people will feel calmer just reading the book because I think it just it it puts some things out there that are the all the scenarios we fear, and I think just by putting them out there and saying them and saying, "Look, there's some simple practical things to overcome these." I found it to be sort of calming to know that there are some really good practical proven tips for some of the things that people are terrified of. But let me give you a minute to tell us a little bit more about the book how it's structured, who it's for, what people would get out of it. It's broken down into two sections. Um, the first is just the basics of speech writing, where I take you through the same process that I walk my clients through when they're working with me. So we go through brainstorming, how to outline your speech, how to actually write the draft, how to edit it, 
how to rehearse it. And then the second half of the book is the application of all those principles where you get 10 real speeches that people have given. And you can see my breakdown of those speeches and even the structure of those speeches to apply to your own toast. So um, as much as we you know, think of toasts and weddings, it's also for the people that need to give a retirement speech, uh, an anniversary speech, or if you're a nonprofit leader, how to give an award speech to someone or an acceptance award. Because very often, if you're accepting an award, you don't really want to talk about yourself, but then you got to talk about something else. So I give tips on how to talk about your own story without necessarily bragging. Um, that's good. And the, I, as you're talking, I'm thinking of also public speaking scenarios that we don't think are public speaking scenarios. <laughs> All public speaking is not done on a stage with a microphone. A staff meeting, you know, sharing an idea at a staff meeting is public speaking, in, in my view, um, or a board meeting or at a, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example, and I'd love your take on what applies in these situations and what carries over. But I do some work with a few organizations on storytelling. And one of their challenges is we want all of our staff to be able to tell our story, but not all of our staff is going to be invited to speak at a rotary meeting. You know, our, maybe our chief financial officer is just not the public speaking type. You're never going to, you know, that's just not going to be a role you're going to put him in. But if he is sitting, if he or she is sitting at dinner with a potential donor or stakeholder, and it's a very informal situation, they still need to be able to tell the story of the organization. Are some of those principles the same? And can you, how do you help people prepare for public speaking who are never going to be in what they would consider to be a public speaking scenario? Right. Um, I think, you know, we get kind of enamored by the size of the audience and think that, you know, those big keynote stages are true public speaking. But as you said, it's really about those smaller conversations that we have with people that count just as much and may even count for more if you're sitting down with donors to talk to, to, talk to them about a donation to your foundation or nonprofit. So I think it comes down to, do you have stories prepared that you can talk about ahead of time? So it really comes down to that preparation piece. If you have that pocket story and you know the kind of the company line of what it is that you want to say and you're ready to give it, that is still public speaking. You still have to sit down, write out a few words ahead of time, practice them. And then when the moment arises, you deliver it. And it's you might just deliver it in conversation, but that's perfectly okay. It comes off incredibly natural and authentic that way, even if you did practice it ahead of time. But that's the whole point that we keep coming back to. It's this hidden practice that we don't see ahead of time. But as long as you are doing that type of hidden practice, you are going to be much more prepared for an audience of one or an audience of a thousand. I, I wish I had counted the number of times that I practiced my TEDx talk. Um, but when I am driving in the car and I've got you know an hour and a half or two hours or however long it is, during that time when I was preparing for the event, I went through it over and just by myself in the car. I recorded it, I, you know, on my phone. I went over it and then I went over it again and then I went over it again. My TEDx talk is actually word for word. It actually is one that I memorized because I wanted it to be right on time. But you, I don't think you would know it. I don't think you, I think when you listen to the talk, you wouldn't know it was memorized, but it was. And I use drive time. 
as my practice time. So there's ways that you can do it. You know, even if you say, oh, I don't have the time practice in the shower, you know, practice quietly as you're trying to go to sleep at night, go through, you know, what, whatever that takes, there's practice time we can carve in when you're jogging or exercising or when you're driving, like I said, but practice, boy, I don't think we can say that enough. That's, that's really where the key is. Agreed. 100%. I'm going to ask you about a couple of myths, a couple of public speaking myths. See if, see if, uh, while I have an expert on the line here, we, I've heard from my childhood that people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of death. Like that's a, that's quoted as some statistic, like more people are afraid of list public speaking as their number one fear than do death. Are you familiar with that stat? And do you know if that's real? Is that a, is that urban legend or is that like a real thing? I'm familiar with the stat. I, I don't know if it's a real thing or not. I know public speaking ranks up there pretty highly. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen like a recent survey of someone, you know, re-asked that question, but you're right. It's very much an urban myth, urban myth or legend. But I do think the, the fear of public speaking is very real for a lot of people. And that's why I do suggest to any of the speakers that I work with that you do go to Toastmasters. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're looking for that opportunity to practice, um, you know, you get to speak every single week at these meetings, whether it's an impromptu speech or a prepared speech that you put out and you get positive feedback and you get a stage to fail on. And that's what you really need is you need those opportunities to fail and grow as a speaker so that when you are giving the speech that counts for a real audience, not a, not a real audience, but one that's going to be you know, making decisions or changing lives, um, not that Toastmasters doesn't, but when you give it in that audience that you want to be in front of to give your message, you're going to be much more prepared to do so. I will vouch for Toastmasters. It's been years since I have attended a Toastmasters, but for people that are afraid of public speaking or know that they need to sharpen that skill, I remember at Toastmasters, one of the things, and again, it's been a number of years, so you can correct me, but when you say speech giving at Toastmasters, that includes going around the table and everyone taking like 60 seconds or 30 seconds to say who they are and what their organization does or something like that. And they're even counting the ums and the, you know, they're timing you, they're timing whether or not you did the 30 seconds or the 60 seconds. And you're getting immediate feedback on something as simple as introducing yourself. So it's not like you have to stand up on this stage at Toastmasters every week and deliver some highly prepared speech. It's just about the practical practice of opening your mouth with any kind of message, including introducing yourself. So it is harmless. It is really, really valuable. I'll vouch for that. I think it's an incredible organization. Second myth. Um, There, there goes, did you hear my, um, I I did. I, I wonder if I have to go back and count my ums. I have editing software. I could edit those out if I wanted to, but I won't. The, there is a quote that is often attributed to Winston Churchill, of course, right? They're all attributed to either Winston Churchill or Abraham Lincoln or, you know, Mark Twain or something. Einstein. Right. Uh, and the quote goes something like, if you need me to speak for five minutes, I need a week to prepare. If you need me to speak for an hour, I'm ready to go right now. Have you heard this? I have. I've heard variations of it, and I've used um, very similar ones. I think another quote very similar to that was uh, attributed to Mark Twain. So it's that one quote that keeps floating around attributed to so many different people. Uh, Maybe they've Um, all said it because they were quoting someone else, but I've heard it. Mark Twain, Woodrow Wilson, and Winston Churchill are the three that I've seen. Sort of, And I just wondered if you had a, a beat on that. 
Right. I think so. To be honest, I actually do agree with this quote. It's actually really easy for someone to kind of just do a word dump onto the page. I think of death by PowerPoint when someone puts together a 60-minute PowerPoint presentation and it's just bullet points all the way through. And it didn't take them very long. They probably prepped it the night before and that was it. Versus oftentimes when I'm working with a speaker, even on the shortest speeches, it does take us a long time because you have to make sure that every word is the word that you want to use when you only have five minutes. So it does take a, a significant amount of time to take all of these initial ideas that you brainstormed out and condense them down into five minutes, which is only around 750 words when, you know, that's nothing when you're writing up, you know, a piece of paper, uh, you know, writing a word document. Um, it's only a few paragraphs. Uh, so you have to be very careful on the word selection and the stories that you use uh, with your shorter speeches. Yeah, and I think another one that Mar it is attributed to Mark Twain, and I think this one actually is a pretty solid uh, attribution, something to the effect of, I would have written you a shorter letter if I'd had time. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for the length of the letter. I would have made it shorter if I'd had time. There's a real thing to that. One of the uh, exercises that I take through take people through sometimes is if you were giving a speech and someone in the audience were going to tweet in 140 characters what your core message was, what would the tweet be? I like that. And really getting it down to can can I can I summarize my point of my message in 140 characters? And sure, you can use abbreviations and emoticons if you want, but how would that look? It's a hard thing to do to really bring it down to what the essence of the message is. And I love that you start there. So I'm imagining um, in speech writing, you know, you mentioned a while ago, it's not like someone says, hey, write me a speech for such and such. And you deliver it and say, here, read this. <laughs> um, I imagine that you do some discovery. Like, what do you what is it you want to say? Who's your audience? Uh, what's the key point? What do you want people to walk away with? What do you want people to do as a result of it? And there's that discovery process. When you are coaching a client, whether it's on speech writing or on the speech giving, what is a what is a coaching engagement look like with you? I think it's e easier to talk through the speech writing process. Um, so when someone comes to engage me, um, we have a initial phone call where it's just a discovery call where I learn more about the speech itself, its length, its deadline what the person wants to get out of the speech. We talk a little bit about their ideas. And from there, I create a brainstorming document for them to fill out. They fill it out, send it back to me. We get on another call and we go more in depth into those answers. Now, it might just be one call if it's a shorter speech, like if it's a wedding toast. But if it's a TEDx talk, there might be four brainstorming calls where we have to get through all of the ideas. And then from there, I create an outline for the speech send it over for the person to review, say, hey, are you good with this outline? Is this you know, capturing what it is that you want to say? And they'll give me feedback and say, yes, no, like I like this part. I don't like this part. Let's change this. And then from there, I'm able to create a first draft only because we've done all of that previous work. I send the first draft over for their review. They give me feedback on that. We trade the drafts back and forth, usually around three times. That's three's just been the magic number. And we have a speech at the end of it. That's good. That's a good description. Because I, I think a lot of people just wonder, you know, what what's that look like? What's that process look like? I, I have found it incredibly helpful. I've had some some writing coaches and, and assistants and 
ghost ghost writing is that way. If you know people people write books this way, they yes. they get a ghost writer and the book you know the ghost writer does the sort of goes through the same process. Uh, I always struggled with that because I, you know I always I like the writing process, but for people that don't, what a great asset to know. Hey, I can turn to 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 an expert who does this and can take my message, which I know is powerful and compelling and make it powerful and compelling for an audience. So I, I love that. I'm going to take a quick break uh, for our sponsor, Leadership Systems, and then I'm going to come back with a couple of key questions I want to ask you to wrap this up. Hang tight. Hey, this is Michael Wallace with Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I want to say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick Jinks and the Leadership Window Podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com slash jinx to see the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com slash jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Michael and Dr. Jim Smith and Taylor and all the folks at LSI for their support and their coaching. And uh, please check them out because if you're looking at adding coaching skills to your repertoire as a leader, they are the people to train you on that. So please check them out. I'm going to start winding this down, Eddie, but I'd like to ask you, what would be your, what comes to mind in terms of helping someone stand out? You know, there's a lot of speakers out there. We go to conferences and it's just one talking head after another, or, you know, even, even the TEDx or the, the, you know, the award ceremonies, what are some of the tips to help people stand out from all of the noise that's out there? I think if you can tell your own personal story in a way that resonates with the audience, that's going to help you stand out. So I've been reading the book, uh, Founder Brand by Dave Gerhart and also uh, Judy Carter's Message of You. And they both get at the same idea of telling your own personal story to advance your brand, whether it's your personal brand or your organization's story, uh, whatever it is. Um, both of these books hit on the same theme. And Judy has this really great line. It's called Mess to Message. And you find a mess in your life. And when you cleaned it up, you tell that story of how you went from that mess to that message in overcoming a certain obstacle or a certain problem. And audiences are going to relate to you far more when you're upfront about the obstacles that you've overcome, how you did it, and the lessons you can share with them. And that works on the stage. It works in media. It works on YouTube. It works on LinkedIn. If you can tell your personal story of what you've overcome, you're going to have a much stronger message. It's going to cut through the typical marketing nonsense that's out there. You mentioned that a while ago when you talked about recognizing someone for their service and, and maybe talking about a challenge that they overcame. And what came to my mind at that time was that's just storytelling 101. If you're writing a novel or a movie or anything, conflict is the hook. I mean, that's what draws you in and gives you something to get emotionally engaged with. You know, think of any movie, whether it's a comedy or an action thriller or anything else, there is some kind of conflict going on. There's a protagonist, there's an antagonist, there's a, there's a plot, there's a resolution. 
And we don't think about that sometimes in our speech giving, but speech giving should be storytelling. And I really like that. I'm an, I, I, I've heard of the Judy Carter book. What, tell me the other one, the first one that you mentioned again. It's called uh, Founder Brand by Dave Gerhart. Um, and it was just released, I think, this week. Um, so it's very, very new on the market. But what he talks about, um, he was the um, chief marketing officer at Drift, I believe, or one of the high marketing officers there. And what they found was when they started to tell their story and their founder's story and their CEO's story, they started to get a lot more traction in the marketplace. And I think of any nonprofit leader out there who can tell their story and their direct connection to the cause that they're representing. And if you can do that, that's going to be far better than just talking about the amount of money you raised, the impact you've had, which are great things to talk about. But if you can talk about your own personal connection to the cause that you represent and why that's there, you're going to have a much stronger story to tell to donors, to tell to supporters, to tell to volunteers. People buy from people first and brand second. Mm, that's good. Those are good. Those are two good recommendations. Message of You by Judy Carter and Founder Brand by Dave Gerhart. Uh, let's wrap this up. A couple of questions I ask all my guests, Eddie. One is I'm always curious to know. I love hearing the stories of leaders who have impacted leaders. And so this is a podcast about leadership in the end. Who are maybe one or two of the leaders in your life or early career or wherever um, who you would say have had a tremendous impact on your journey and your philosophy on leadership and, and why that person? I think back to my high school Spanish teacher, senior householder, um, and we had an, an immersion Spanish program. And he was not like the other teachers in the school whatsoever. He came in one day, I remember he was a little bit angry because he had received a perfect attendance award from the school. And he said, why am I receiving this award? I, this is my job. <laughs> this is what I'm supposed to do. Why are they giving me an award for this? This is, I'm, I'm supposed to show up every day. I don't need an award for it. And that's always stuck with me in terms of, yes, showing up is 80% of the job, but it is a large part of the job, but it's not something that you need an award for. And in addition, he would always hold us to these incredibly high standards. I remember I kept getting B pluses and B pluses and B pluses on my work, even though I knew it was probably A minus or A plus work at the time. But what he was doing was he kept raising the bar little by little to get me to improve even more and even more because he knew that grade would get me to push myself even harder to do even better in his class. That is so inspiring. I'm loving that. I'm loving that. And you're right. Yeah, award, the, we do. We give. We recognize things that are sort of givens. You know, I get up and work hard every day. <laughs> Join, Join <the> welcome. <laughs> um, here's my next question for you, and, and we'll wrap with this. I, it's just thanks again, um, Eddie, for the time and the generosity. I mean, you've just given a masterclass uh, uh, to our listeners. I do hope uh, that folks will go to the website, ricespeechwriting.com. There's a number of things that Eddie can help you with and definitely get the book. Well worth it. It's not expensive. It's not going to take you a, a, a year to read. It will be very, very practical and share it with your staff is what I would say to that. But um, Eddie, the last question I like to ask my guests is if you were to give all leaders of the world one piece of advice or like, this is the thing, this is the Eddie Rice 20 second soundbite on what the most important thing in leadership is, 
<laughs> big question, right? What would that be? Very what comes big to question. mind for you? I think it just comes down to preparation. If you can prepare ahead of time, whether it's preparing for a meeting, a leadership crisis, or a speech, um, it's the work that you do that no one else sees that matters 100%. Hmm. So if you can prepare ahead of time, um, you are going to be well ahead of anyone else out there. And that comes down to when you write a speech and you practice it a hundred times without anyone else seeing it, but then you go on to deliver an amazing speech, it's because you have practiced and you've prepared. And that really resonates and you can tell which leaders come prepared to meetings, which leaders come prepared to conversations and which ones don't, and they stand out. That's a thank you for that because that's a great reminder for me. I, I like that one hit me personally pretty good. We can get uh, we can get lazy. You know, we think, well, I've got the talent. I've done this before. I can go out and do it. And what they call phoning it in, you know, uh, and we can deliver something. But preparing for each engagement as though it were critical because it should be. That's that's where excellence really starts to shine. So I, I appreciate that. What a, what a great lesson. Thanks again, Eddie. Um, go to ricespeechwriting.com. That's rice like the rice you eat. R-I-C-E speechwriting.com. And uh, run over to Amazon and pick up the book Toast. Wonderful book to read. Uh, again, the book is uh, Toast Big. What What is it again, Eddie? The subtitle. Toast, short speeches, big impact. I don't know why I can't remember that. Uh, anyway, go get it. Thanks, folks. Lead on.